uh, whom Jesus loves, but yet do not know Jesus as Savior yet. We believe, I believe that prayer actually is the most important work of the gospel. Uh, just even through prayer. Um, God can bring people to Jesus to accept him as Savior. And so we're gonna, um, we're gonna commit to really identifying people in our lives. We're gonna pray, and we're not just ourselves pray, we're, we're gonna have a way in which all of us will be praying together for the different people in each other's lives so that we really feel that this is a movement of prayer. Second, uh, we're going to be trained next month in December in our winter uh, uh, Life Bible classes, we're gonna be devoting the Life Bible class to training in sharing the gospel. So this is gonna be an interactive class. The hope is that we're gonna have multiple ways, different tools for sharing the good news of Jesus. If you say, well, you know, I don't know how to share, or it's been a long time since I've shared the gospel, this is a good opportunity to come and get refreshed and, and do a little bit of interaction so that when God gives us those, again, usually the opportunities are unexpected. When God gives us the unexpected opportunities, we wanna be able to say, I'm ready, uh, I know what to say, or I know how to begin, I know how God wants me to share this gospel. And so that's what we're gonna be doing. The third thing we're gonna be doing is inviting. And uh, if you look on your uh, chairs, we have these cards. And so what we're gonna be doing is, this year, we're gonna be inviting people to come and see what God is doing at Living Hope. And this is not just, oh, you know, won't you come and then I've finished my fulfillment. We're gonna pray that every one of us will be able to actually successfully invite a non-Christian friend, a coworker, or a neighbor to actually come and sit in a seat here during the service. And so if, if, you know, if God is, you know, fulfills this commitment, we'll have over 100 visitors this coming year. We'll be checking the visitors' cards and say, hey, are we gonna have 100 visitors who've come and sit in and been able to hear the gospel, been able to be exposed to Christian community? So we have these cards, and you have a, everyone has a card on their seat, and so this week, Commit yourself to say, hey God, give me the opportunity to personally give this card to someone. It invites them, tells them a little bit about what we're going over in the next few weeks up till Christmas and uh, gives the address and the time and just tell them, hey, go check out the website. This is where I go on weekends, even if you just wanna find out more and uh, just give that to somebody, invite them and, and if you, there's more cards in the back, you know, if you wanna say, hey, I wanna do just more than just one card, I wanna do two cards, three cards or one card a week, please do do that. And also uh, later on as we approach Christmas, uh, we're going to be able to go into the neighborhood and go door to door and start passing out some of the cards, inviting people to come and join us for Christmas. So Sue, please do be praying about that. Uh, be ready to say, hey, one of these Sundays as part of the Life Bible class after service, we're just gonna go out and, uh, and, and, and meet the neighbors and invite them to come and join us. And then finally, the last commitment is we're gonna walk. And we're gonna walk, we're gonna go out and actually verbally share the gospel. We're gonna say, hey, I wanna commit myself this year, every single one of us here, uh, to share the gospel with somebody this year. Not, not bring someone to Christ, because that's the Spirit's work, but, but have that opportunity to say, God, give me the opportunity at least once this year to be able to speak the truths of the gospel to somebody in my life that, that God has placed in my life. And uh, you know, I'm excited because if you think about this, if we're faithful, then there will be 100 people in our community, in our neighborhoods this year who have the knowledge of Jesus Christ that they didn't have before. And when I think of that, that that's actually really exciting. 
And so that's something that, that that's why I say we, we all commit together. We all pray together. Even if you say, well, I'm not real good at it. I don't know who I'm going to share with. Don't worry about that. If we commit and we say surrender to God, I really do believe God's going to provide that way. It'll be in the most unexpected way. Uh, it may be in a time when you're not, you know, not prepared or whatever, but we're just praying. And we believe that God's going to give us that ability and that opportunity to share the gospel. And as we pray, um, we set the bar higher to say we do believe that we're going to hear about some people coming to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And I just want to keep this real because, you know, this is not just about some, some you know, nice theme that we want to accomplish this year. I mean, this is really, this is about saving lives, right? It's about rescuing people who unknowingly are presently on a path to hell. I mean, this is what it really is. And anything that we can do for the sake of the gospel, anything we can do, will be part of saving lives for eternity. Not just one, not just the one that we speak to, but perhaps more than we can ever imagine. The people that we reach and the, the people that they're going to reach. And so today we're going to be continuing our series on Jesus loves from the gospel of Luke. And we're looking at different people that Jesus loved during his time on earth in ways in which he expressed the love of God uh, towards ordinary day-to-day -day people in the time of Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to be looking at Jesus loves the sinner. Now, as we think about this topic, I want to ask you, who is the most notable person in the news right now who has declared their faith in Jesus Christ publicly? Some of you may know. Oh, right. See, even, even the older people, even this side knew, right? <laughs> I was expecting to say shout. But yeah, Kanye. And um, this is exciting, okay? Some people are really excited. Some people are, you know, fearful or whatever. But Kanye has been very vocal about, um, I don't have to explain who Kanye is, do I? Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, he's been very vocal about his faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, because of his colored past, uh, there's been a lot of skepticism, even criticism about Kanye's conversion experience. In fact, here are some Twitter reactions to Kanye's new album, Jesus is King, and these are Christians. And they say, well, the self-proclaimed God, Kanye West, is just a mere man. Kanye is the, this is one that was really bad, Kanye is the spirit of the Antichrist. What Kanye is doing is blasphemous. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing and he's deceiving the people. And another person wrote, Kanye is not a Christian. How do you know that? Kanye in a recent interview said this, and this is what he said. He said, now that I'm in service to Christ, my job is to spread the gospel, to let people know what Jesus has done for me. You know, I've spread a lot of things. There was a time when I was letting people know what high fashion has done for me. I was letting people know what Hennessy has done for me. I was letting people know all these things, but now I'm letting you know what Jesus has done for me. And in that, I am no longer a slave. I am a son now. I'm a son of God, and I'm free. And those words, I mean, they're just, they're beautiful. Really praise God. He wrote a song uh, in, in, his, in his album called Hands On, dealing with some of the skeptics, particularly from the Christian, uh, from the Christian community. And these are the words. He says, I deserve all the criticism you got. 
If that's all the love you have, that's all you got. To sing of change, you think that I'm joking. To praise his name, you ask what I'm smoking. Yes, I understand your reluctancy, yeah. I have one request, you see. Don't throw me up. Lay your hands on me. Please, pray for me. That's powerful. Don't throw me up. Lay your hands. Please, please, pray for me. And we do need to pray because it's hard. It's really hard what he's going to face in the future if he continues to stand for Jesus Christ. And I think this really leads into our passage this morning, the parable that Jesus spoke to his disciples regarding the Pharisee and the tax collector, regarding God's immeasurable love for the sinner. So I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verse nine. Luke chapter 18, verse nine. In a reverence for the word of God, let's, let's stand together. And it says, he told this parable, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. For I fast twice a week. I give tithes with all I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated at this time. See, so from this passage, we're going to see that Jesus loves the sinner. We're going to delve into what this really means, particularly for followers of Jesus Christ, how our hearts need to be deeply challenged, changed by the heart of God in this very simple truth that, that we all know, but yet it's a very profound and, and it's a difficult truth to, to, to really grasp and embrace. So Jesus, he tells this parable, it's a short story, illustrating this powerful spiritual truth. In verse nine he says, and he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so Luke is telling us directly that there's a problem and the problem that Jesus wants to address in his people. And he says he's addressing those who trust in themselves, who think that they're righteous, meaning they're not righteous, and who treated others around them with an attitude of contempt. And so this is the, this is the problem or the issue in the church or among the Christians that I believe that this passage will address. And so first of all, as we look at this passage, there are two things we wanna look at. Number one, we wanna look at theology. And we wanna talk about what is righteousness? What does the Bible have to say about righteousness? And the second thing we wanna look at is in the application. When we understand righteousness in the eyes of God, how does that challenge us and even change us in the way that we love 
others, how we love one another, how we love people in our lives. So the first thing we want to look at is theology. Now theology is very important because what we believe about God will determine our behavior. Basically how we live and how we act ultimately comes or flows out of what we believe about God. And so when we think about righteousness, we want to know what is righteousness according to scripture and how does it under how does it help us understand this love of God. So in verse 9, it says he Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, normally we think of righteousness as um kind of actions, behavioral. So uh, it's the morals and behavior of a person. If a person does the right things, he's a righteous person. If a person is able to please God, he's a, a righteous person. But you know, the Bible, in the Bible, the idea of righteousness is, is not so much about action. It's actually about decision. See, the biblical definition of righteousness, a righteous person, is a righteous person is someone who has received a verdict of approval in the eyes of God. Okay, that's really what righteousness is. And the best picture of righteousness in the Bible um, is basically like a verdict in a court of law. In a court of law, the judge and jury, we know they, we've seen enough you know, law and order and stuff like that. Um, they, you know, hopefully it's not you learn like by experience, you know, you learn from watching TV, right? <laughs> um, so uh, in, a, in a court of law, the judge and jury, they listen to the arguments, they examine the evidence, and they come up with basically a final decision, a verdict. And when that verdict is declared, if the verdict is innocent, then the accused is declared righteous. He's innocent, and therefore he must go free. That's how a court of law works. Same way when we stand before God. God examines our lives, the words we have said, the things we have done, and he makes a final decision. He decides and declares whether or not we are righteous, whether or not we're going to go to heaven or hell for eternity. Now, this is very real. This is not symbolic or whatever. This is real. And, 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 and people, we know all of the people, uh, all of us, as we think about this, you know, we want to, you know, when we stand before God, of course, I want... A righteous, I want to be uh, declared righteous. I want to have that verdict to say, yeah, I'm approved by God, I'm gonna go to heaven. And it's no different from the people in Jesus' time. The people in Jesus' time, as they were following Jesus around, their question in their mind is, okay, this is a, a rabbi, a, a prophet, and, and he has a connection to God, and his teaching about God is so real and so different from everything else that we've heard. You know, we want to know from Jesus, how can I be declared righteous before God? That's one of the main points of this parable, is Jesus is teaching them about righteousness. And so if the, when Jesus tells this parable, first he kind of gives a faulty understanding of righteousness, kind of what the world uh, in his time was thinking about righteousness and the fact that it was not actually correct. And so in verse 11, he says there's a Pharisee. 
And the Pharisee says, Pharisee's praying to God, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like the extortioners, unjust adulterers, unjust, the adulterers, or like this tax, he even says, like this tax, you know, the tax collector is there is praying, poor guy, he just wants to pray. And, and, and here's a, a Pharisee saying, and I'm so glad, God, that I'm not like this guy over here praying, you know. And, and he says, I give, I give tithes. And so the Pharisee's prayer you can tell from his prayer, it's really clear, his righteousness, his understanding of righteousness, it lies in his actions. Why? Because he's saying, well, God, I do this, I do that. I'm not like this person. I'm not like that person. He's confident in the idea that his righteousness is found in the sum of his actions. Now, does God want us to be moral people? Yes, he does. Of course he does. God is a holy God. The Bible clearly says God hates sin. Several times it says that. But this does not mean, this does not mean that if we sin less, that we'll be declared righteous in God's eyes. That's not what it means. It does not mean that if I do more good than bad in my life, that I'll be declared righteous or considered righteous in the eyes of God. See, verse 9, Jesus was correcting those who mistakenly trusted in themselves and in their own righteousness. In fact, it says, you know, that they were, in a sense, they were confident, not just trusted, they were confident in their own righteousness. Confidence literally means to put your full weight on something. Now, I want you to watch this video as an illustration of what confidence means. So let's go ahead and play the video. You're scared, but you know you're going to be okay, so that's all that matters. But you will be okay. You know, most girlfriends don't have to have this talk with their boyfriends. It's all you, honey. Okay. You don't have to jump if you don't want to. But you know this will be the coolest single experience you can have. Terrible boyfriend. <laughs> all right, here we go. Okay, so this is a picture of confidence, putting your full weight in something and jumping off a cliff, literally believing that that's going to hold you up. Now, this Pharisee in Jesus' story, he was confident in his own righteousness. He is, would be willing to put his full weight on his own works and jump off a cliff and say, ah, it's going to hold up. And, but the question is, is he right? That's the thing. Is he right? And Jesus is going to say, no, he's not right. See, here's the thing. Is, see, death is like, for all of us, death is like this terrifying canyon. Okay? 
And we're going to have to stand in that canyon and look down at death, and we're going to have to jump. We're going to have to. I mean, it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And we're going to have to put our full weight into something, some hope to say it's going to save us as we leap into that canyon of the unknown. And Jesus is making it very clear from this parable that the rope of personal self-righteousness to say, you know, God, I'm going to believe that I've been a good person and I'm better than most people and I'm going to hold on to that rope and I'm going to jump off this cliff and I'm going to trust that that rope's going to hold and Jesus says it's not going to hold I'll tell you right now do not wait until you're at the edge of that canyon and try to jump off the cliff and hold on to this rope of self-righteousness Jesus in verse 13 says but the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but he beat his breast saying God be merciful to me I am a sinner see this tax collector he's like the Kanye of ancient times he's the least likely person to be considered righteous because of his past past actions but Jesus says don't look at his past actions the tax collector the people like Kanye he says look at the present what is this tax collector doing he is standing at a distance he does not look up to heaven he beats his breast and his prayer is one simple prayer God have mercy on me for I am a sinner there's no uh, self-congratulation. There's no summary of his deeds and what he has done. There's no sense that God is obligated to him to, to reason with God to say, this is why you should save me. There's only one recognition uh, that's th that this um, tax collector said. He says, God, I need your mercy. I need your mercy. And so you have these two options here in this parable. You have the first option, the religious leader who's confident that he has done more than enough to earn God's approval. And then you have a sinner, the tax collector, who is confident that he has done nothing to deserve God's approval. <coughs> and they both stand on the edge of a cliff about to launch. And the question is, whose rope will actually hold? And in verse 14, Jesus says very clearly, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. It was the tax collector who was declared righteous and approved by God. That when the decision time came, the decision that God determines whether I'm acceptable and ready and prepared for heaven, it has nothing to do with my actions, <coughs> nothing to do with my behavior, uh, moral behavior. It has to do with God's actions, God sending his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. It has to do with the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. It has to do with the willingness of our willingness to humble ourselves, to set aside all of our thinking of how we might try to do things and just accept God's mercy, cry out for God's mercy through Jesus Christ. So if you're here today, if you're here today and you're still trying your hardest to be good enough for God, 
<coughs> if you're here today and you even have just a sliver of doubt, just a very sliver of doubt saying, I'm not sure what God is going to say when I stand before him. And you need to accept Jesus today to cry out for mercy, to grab hold of this rope that's there for you right now to admit that I'm a sinner, that I really do need God. All of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. To believe that Jesus, the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sin, he paid the penalty for my sin, he rose from the dead. To choose to follow Jesus in obedience by faith. Put our weight on Jesus Christ. If you've never done this, this is the only thing, the only way uh, that we can be saved. And so Jesus is communicating to us this important truth that righteousness comes from God. This is theology. He extends it through mercy, through his son, <coughs> who trusts in themselves. David, can I ask you to grab my water for me? You're just right there. I'm, for some reason, having a little bit of a... Thanks so much. Thanks, David. <coughs> and so we want to look at what does... The second thing we want to look at is what does... How does the righteousness of God um, affect how we fulfill God's mission in this world, how we love one another, how we love and treat the people in, in the world around us? And this is actually where it comes home, where, where theology must become real, like how we live. So first of all, when we look at this, uh, the one thing we're going to see is that resting in God's righteousness helps us take our eyes off of ourselves. See, we can't love others in the way God wants us to if we're preoccupied with self. You go back to verse 10. The Pharisee <coughs> in his prayer says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterer, unjust adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes all, with all that I get. Now, when you read this, what's interesting and what's kind of humorous, but not really humorous, is that this Pharisee's prayer is structured like a psalm of praise. The problem is, is that this Pharisee has replaced the term God with me, <laughs> I. He says, I'm grateful for myself. I'm thankful that I am unlike any other. And I'm worshiping because I have done great things, right? That's, a, that's an I psalm, a me psalm. And he says five times, and five times in these two verses, he's the first person singular pronoun, making himself saying, you know, he is the, the subject of this psalm of praise. And see, here's the thing, is the love of God must begin with a confidence that I'm accepted in love because of grace. Not, not I'm thankful for myself, I'm thankful for God. It's not, I'm better, I'm, I'm unlike any other, it's God is unlike any other, because why? Because he extended grace to me, I can't believe why he would extend grace to me to save me and give his son for me. God is like any other. I praise God not because I've done my mighty works and I'm listing these things to you, I'm praising God because of God's mighty works, the things that he has done for mankind, for those who are lost. When we take our minds and our eyes off of ourself when we don't have to worry about myself and my needs and my righteousness and what God thinks about me. It enables us to now love others as God, as Jesus loves them. Because self is always, 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 self is always going to get in the way of love. That's just how it is. 
If we hold on to hurt, we focus on self. If we hold on to injustice, and we won't forgive. If we hold on to any confidence myself, if we uh, focus on my personal hang-ups, my self-image, what people think of me, my insecurities, or even my own se- my securities of myself, all of these things will cast a shadow on the love of God that could be expressed through us if we take our eyes off of self and, and focus and, 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 and love God. That we must learn, if we're going to love like Jesus Christ, we must learn to rest in God's righteousness alone. When Jesus, I was thinking when Jesus was baptized and God said, this is my son, and that the second sentence is very important, in whom I am well pleased. Meaning God has made the decision. I'm well pleased with Jesus. Jesus hadn't even done anything in his ministry yet, right? He hadn't done anything yet. He just appeared and got baptized, but God says, I'm well pleased. This is my decision about Jesus, my son. Jesus don't have to worry about self. You don't have to worry about what God thinks of him. He doesn't, because he knows I'm the son of God. God has already declared I'm well pleased. And what I would like to do is, is sometimes for me, I have to think about it and say, you know, that's like God saying it to each one of us as we receive Jesus as Savior. That God's saying, this is my child in whom I'm well pleased. And so anytime we start thinking about me, about, you know, I, about people, what they're saying about me, about my hang-ups or struggles, about my guilt or worrying about myself, we go back to the statement that God says, this is my child in whom I'm well pleased. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to convince other people anything else because when you think of God, God already made his decision. And what is his decision? I'm well pleased. So God says, that's out of the picture now. You just go and love, and love others, and love in the way that that Jesus, my son, loved. And so that's the first thing, is the love of of God helps me not to put my eyes on self, but really to put my eyes on others. The second thing that resting in God's righteousness does is that it helps us draw close to others. See, because from a human standpoint, our natural inclination is kind of to separate ourselves from others, from those particularly who are different than us. You look at verse 11. Uh, Again, the Pharisee says very clearly, I thank you that I am not like other men. That's his very first statement. And the, the, the tragedy of this is this is a sense of separation. This Pharisee's prayer, I am not like these people and I thank you God that I'm not like them. But the tragedy is, what? The truth is, he is exactly like them. He stands in need of the forgiveness of God just like every single other person on earth. He is exactly like them. And this is the thing, is when we rest in God's righteousness, we realize and we begin to be hit with this idea that we are all the same. We're not separate. It's not looking at somebody saying, I'm not like them, God. I'm not like him, God. I'm not like her, God. We are all the same. Why? Because of the, 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 the God loves us so much. And maybe we're a little bit different. And the only reason why we may be different is because of the immeasurable grace of God. Right? I didn't choose where I was born. 
I didn't choose my parents. I didn't choose the fact that somebody from church got me here or that the gospel came to me at whatever age it came to. We didn't choose these things. This is a measurable grace of God. Now, we may not look at others and actually say, I thank God I'm not like so-and-so. But for some people, we think it, okay? Think about it. Sometimes we do carry in our hearts an attitude of separation. We do. When someone is proud and hurtful and we say, how can somebody act like that? What we're really saying in our hearts as well is we're saying, thank God I'm not like that, right? We are. When we have a fight with someone and they're so unreasonable and that person drives me crazy and we say, how can they think like that? What are we saying inside our hearts? We're saying, wow, thank God I'm not like that. Thank God I'm a reasonable person and I think normally. When we judge someone because of their unwise choices and we see the mess that they're in, our hearts, we say, but thank God I'm not like that. Thank God I made the right decisions. Thank God that, that I can handle my life. Thank God that I'm thinking ahead and, and I don't get myself in those problems and things like that. And that's a spirit of separation. That's a pharisaical prayer, right? And we hinder the spirit of Christ. See, here's the thing. When we think about those people that drive us crazy, those people that make us mad, those people that... Uh, that maybe we feel sorry for, when we're tempted to say, thank God, I'm not like that. Oops, I went too fast. What we should say instead, and this is something, just kind of replace it, and, and I tried this, it helps. We say, forgive me, God, for I'm just like that. And it enables us to, to love with the love of God. When a person is mean and inconsiderate and impolite and staying, saying, God, thank God I'm not like that person. We should say our first thought in our mind was, God, forgive me. Because I know that there are times when I'm just like that. That I'm a person, that I was a person who was lost in sin, who's saved only because of Jesus. When a person is proud and selfish and rude and we're tempted to say, God, thank God I'm not like her. Instead, we say, God, you know, even if they hurt us so badly, we say, and we want to give them a piece of our mind, we want to correct and we want to hurt them back, we say, God, but forgive me, for I am no different. That the only thing that is different is the mercy of God that was expressed towards me. That's the only thing that's different. When we see someone who's in a bad situation, in a bad way, who's suffering because of their own poor choices or whatever, uh, instead of saying, well, I feel sorry for them, but you know, it's their fault. No, we say, forgive me, Jesus, because I'm just like them. And the only difference is you have been so good to me and I don't know why. I don't know why, God. See, resting in righteousness, the righteousness of God, draws us close to those that we might otherwise separate ourselves from. 
It helps us to love in the way that, that God, that Jesus loves. It reminds us that we are equally loved by God, that we're equally valued by Jesus Christ, that the only difference between us and the people that drive us crazy or make us mad is the undeserved mercy of God in my life. That's the only difference, and I don't understand. And we say, I don't understand, and I can't explain why God chose to express his grace towards me in this way. Why I'm in this position, it's, it's the grace of God. We need to, to stop the judgment. Judgment is a poison in the church. This one truth, Jesus loves the sinner, should cut to the very heart of every church, of living hope in every church in America that transform us to the core of our community so that we can approach people everyone within the church, outside the church, and really say, forgive me God, for I am just like whatever. Give me the, the grace and the mercy to be able to love in the way that Jesus loved. That's the second thing. Third thing we see arresting in God's righteousness is it enables us to walk in humility. There are two key words in this parable we want to take note of. In verse 14, it says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. In verse nine, it says, and he treated others with contempt, or that treated others with contempt. So visually, when you exalt yourself, there's two words, exalt and contempt. To exalt yourself literally means to raise yourself up. To treat someone with contempt means literally to push someone down. And so these two actions are obviously related, right? It's a spatial type of, of word. That if you or I, in action or thought, raise ourselves higher than we ought, we are going to look down on others. That's just what's going to happen. And the converse is true as well. If we look down on others, whether in action or thought, we are basically raising ourselves higher than we ought. Either action leads to the same result. Right? A heart of pride. Pride sets us apart from the heart of God. Pride desecrates the principle, the beautiful truth that God loves the sinner. Pride forgets the beautiful and unique Christian truth that God chooses to extend his love, acceptance, and approval towards anyone, anyone who would humble themselves and receive God's son. This is honest to God. Satan is so crafty. We need to ask ourselves, you know, what are those things in my life right now that would cause me to be tempted to exalt myself over someone else? It's so my education. Oh, when I found out, oh, you didn't go to a university? Oh, you went to this college? Oh, oh, you didn't graduate? You didn't go to college at all? Does that make me exalt myself over someone? Is it money? If I, oh, they drive that car? Oh, they don't own a house all this time? And they're still, they're still that, that far behind financially? Is it, is it uh, accomplishment? Is it popularity? Is it appearance? Wow, that person... Or is it other things like faithfulness? Oh, you know, uh, I'm going to exalt myself because I'm so faithful. Uh, I'm so kind. I'm so good. So this is the things that, what are the things that, 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 that we are tempted 
to exalt ourselves through, they're probably going to be the similar things that we also look down on people for, right? And we can go the other way as well and say, what are some of the things that I'm pretty ultra-critical about people? What actions, what qualities, what worldly things cause me to, to look down on someone? Jesus loves the sinner. That's us. That's who we were. We're saints. We're sanctified, again, because of the love of Jesus Christ. This one simple truth from the Word of God, I believe, digs down to the very heart of our soul. Challenges us to really rip apart every vestige of pride. Every uh, uh, every separation that we may separate ourselves from people, every judgment that, that we hold against people, every criticism, every hatred or, or anger or, or prejudice or, or unforgiveness that we may harbor in the, the deepest, you know, darkest, most private places in our hearts. Jesus loves the sinner, exposes us before God to say we are naked before God we cannot offer anything to God to say, God, this is why you should be good to me, or this is why you should be good to me instead of that person. Uh, the, the, the fact that Jesus loves the sinner brings us not to a place of shame, but it brings us to the feet of Jesus in worship and rejoicing, in thanksgiving, in prayer, to say, thank you, God, for the things that you have done. I praise you, God, for you are unlike any other. I worship you, God, for you have have done great things. It is in these things that, love of, that the love of God will fill us and ready us to be his servants. In this world that is so full of darkness and anger and judgment and criticism and hurt, we are the light of the world. We are the children of Jesus. We are the ones in which God says, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. And as we leave this place week after week, let us be reminded of this truth that we may go out and, and, and be those children to love the world in a way that the world just cannot explain. Let's, let's spend some time in prayer.